0: TIBCO was started in the 90s with a popular message bus product that was widely used by finance companies, logistics providers, and other systems with high throughput. As TIBCO grew in popularity, the company expanded into other areas through products it developed in-house, as well as through acquisitions. One acquisition was Jaspersoft, a business intelligence data platform. When TIBCO acquired Jaspersoft in 2014, The architecture was a monolithic Java application. Around this time, the customer use cases of JasperSoft were shifting from a centralized reporting use case to real-time embedded visualizations. The use case of the JasperSoft software was becoming less centralized and less monolithic, and the software architecture needed to change in order to reflect that. Jan Schiffman is a VP of Engineering at TIBCO, and Sherman Wood is a Director at TIBCO. They joined the show today to discuss the process of migrating a large Java monolith to a composable set of services. Breaking up a monolith is not an easy process, nor is it something that every company should do just because they have a monolith. In some cases, a monolith is just fine. Jan and Sherman describe why the business use case for JasperSoft was becoming less centralized, and why that change in business use case... Required a change in the software architecture from a monolith to a more microservice-like architecture. We talk through the modern use cases of embedded analytics, which is what JasperSoft does. And we also talk about the interaction between business analysts and data engineers. At a higher level, we discuss the lessons they have learned from managing a large, complex refactoring. This show is useful to anybody who is deliberating how important it is to break up their monolith into microservices because Jan and Sherman articulate quite clearly how the business use cases for their software changed and why that led to a requirement to change the monolithic software architecture. Full disclosure, TIBCO is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Shipment you are VP engineering at Tibco and Sherman Wood you are a director at Tibco guys welcome to software engineering daily well thanks jeff it's great Thank to you. be here tibco was started in the 90s with its message bus product and this is still a product that's used by lots of companies the message bus was the initial successful product that allowed tibco to expand and get into lots of other areas and we're going to explore some of those areas Many of the listeners are interested in the business of software and how the software industry evolves over time. Can you describe the initial TIBCO product and how the company grew in the early days?
1: Sure. Actually, both Sherman and I uh, had a connection with TIBCO, I think, early on. So, Tipco started out as Technicron, which was a company that actually created a a real-time messaging system that ended up on, uh, I think, trading room. Trading floors, yeah. Yeah, moving a lot of financial data. I happened to work at Reuters in their real-time financial data systems at a time when they purchased Technicron. They later spun it off, I guess about two years later, Mm -hmm. around 1996,
2: I think. Yeah, and that's where I I got involved during that time. So.
1: Yeah, and then it became Technicron, was then TIBCO.
2: Yep, TIBCO. And it left the trading room stuff behind to Reuters and went purely into you know the, the data messaging sort of
1: world. Yeah, really so. into the data center, connecting systems there. For applications and, yeah. and so
0: on, yeah. Interesting. So as TIBCO changed and expanded, the company started making acquisitions, and one of those acquisitions was your company, JasperSoft. Can you describe the strategic reasoning for that acquisition and what the Jaspersoft business was? Well, mm. I, th-
1: I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, mm-hmm. one was the fact that we were a subscription model, and I mm-hmm. think that that's something that TIBCO uh, wanted to embrace and I think has become an important part of their go-forward strategy. Yeah, we had an open source base, which was interesting for them. They were
2: very interested in part of the subscription thing is what, would be typically called high velocity. So Tipco's sales model was really big enterprise software sales. Um, and so they had no sort of light touch light touch sales model. So uh, Jaspersoft had developed a very marketing funnel driven approach, uh, you know, a lot of leads, work them automatically and then push them through a, you know, a, a light touch sales model letting the customers do or prospects do their own proof of concept and you know then go for pretty low dollar sort of low dollar sort of sales so that model is what you know tipco was buying into when they bought into jasper but
1: unlike most tipco products at the time it wasn't a perpetual license Correct. it was a yep. subscription yep. Uh, subscription model which is recurring revenue yep. and and also we
2: were reporting we were you know essentially reporting an embedded bi platform which complemented other things that tipco had in the portfolio like yep. particularly
1: spotify right mm mm-hmm.
0: That was a shift that happened in software purchasing that probably many people listening to the show were not in the software industry to be aware of. This shift from the long sales cycle, the big price tag, the negotiation that happens around the price tag of whatever like large piece of software is being sold to whatever customer. The shift from that to SaaS or PaaS or infrastructure as a service, I could see why the acquisition of a company, you know, for other reasons, but also just for the model of how did that sales process work? You know, the customer acquisition process and the, I'm sure, you know, you had some domain expertise when Tipco acquired Jaspersoft in the kind of the customer acquisition model of the future.
2: So really, JasperSoft as a company came into open source in 2004 where they acquired the copyright and the project leads from the JASP Reports Library, which is still involved with us heavily today.
1: And we'll talk more about that, actually. And
2: iReport, which was a visual designer for for JASP Reports. So they started doing that in 2004. They got money, (laughs) they got VC money or funded money to go into open source because they were previously a, a commercial software vendor. So this was like a new market, a new way to go to market in there. So we went, into that with what ended up being what we call an open core model, an open source base, large community, and then commercial extensions on top of that. Uh, And, you know, we were sort of selling Dock at one point, but that was sort of a bit silly. Uh, A little bit on the services end, but uh, mostly it was about selling these subscriptions going forward. So, you know, I think that was, Jaspersoft was really a leading light in that whole approach in that that mid 2000s yeah, model right yeah. and so we sort of developed that over time we did more commercial things as well as keeping the open source community happy and going and then eventually you know went down the uh, were acquired by Tibco so um, so we really had a very into the sales side of things a very marketing funnel driven approach large numbers of leads coming in automating like you know watching the prospect or the, the community or coming into our website, attending webinars, that sort of thing, using automation to rank them, oh, this person's ready to buy type of thing and going through that. Yeah, right? So, right.
1: And so, I mean, this, this is something that, that people do with a lot of CRM platforms yep. now and it's just really watching the you know, conversion from stage to stage within, yep. within the funnel mm-hmm. and you can put a lot of automation around this and, mm-hmm. and Jasper Soft was an early mover.
2: Yeah, we got a, an award from I can't remember the the sales organization about the sort of thing because we did things like increase our opportunity conversion rate about three or four percent when we went to the automated approach rather than the manual one. might you know, we'll be getting
1: pretty
0: deep into yeah, yeah. The, So the, the sales model here, <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, I think the I I mean I've this is something that that I would never have expected when I started the podcast, but I've actually gotten pretty interested in intelligent marketing like right. how you spend <laughs> yeah, your, your marketing, because it's, 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 a, it's a hard problem and it's it's there's a whole lot of subjectivity to it there's a whole lot of subjectivity but there's also data you know that you can you can centralize decisions around and so
1: and again yeah you, you can take sort of just uh, classic analytics so whether you're classic or more big data looking for you know mm-hmm. pattern recognition mm-hmm. and you can apply that to, to right. marketing automation and that applies now to things like recruiting So recruiting automation platforms, and and at one point I I worked for one here in San Francisco, as CTO, we applied exactly the same model, the same technology, and really the same analysis
0: to actually recruiting. Mm -hmm. So the product itself, the JasperSoft product, that was around reporting and business intelligence, which is a, that's one of these areas of software engineering that has been changing non-stop since I mean since at least 2006 around or 2005 around that time when you guys were working on when you started JasperSoft and it's it really it it continues to change especially you know with machine learning becoming more accessible and and also BI you know people who are doing BI becoming more tech savvy so that the the kind of the lowest common denominator is getting more sophisticated but back then when you started JasperSoft what did that term mean? What did that business intelligence term mean?
1: It meant very different things than it does today. Absolutely. I mean, back then you were looking at technologies like OLAP, mm-hmm. for example. The way that you would sort of slice and dice information, could analyze it, is, probably seems very primitive by today's standards. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'd say that, you know, when Jasper software
2: started on the open source track, we did the initial releases of the Of the server, we were essentially establishing the same model as the existing players like Cognos and Business Objects and and so on, where you know you're uh, essentially doing there's some level of reporting, there's some level of self-service for end users, there's some level of you know data mapping and connection to data, and people would experience that by going to like they go to a portal and be able to interact with stuff, or they you know have. Reports being sent to them via email or whatever, right? That was the, the sort of basic sort of model originally there. And really what JasperSoft was doing at that point was going, we're going to give you, you know, 80% of the functionality that you need to do that, those sorts of things at 20% of the cost or free, right? That right. was the essential approach uh, for open source business intelligence in those days. And now, of course, it's very, very different. The migration I just was literally presenting to uh, various people in my product team and, and engineering team this morning about how that has all shifted. Now the focus is all about, you know, if you look in like the analyst analysis firms like Gartner, Forrester and others, who whose audiences are the enterprise, basically, it's all about self-service for with a rich user experience for people to create and interact with data and then sort of go up from there into the various levels of statistical and, you know, up to the machine learning sort of level there. Really, you know, reporting is like table stakes and has been done and everybody does it. It's all about enabling really the end user to create their own experience. Yes,
1: and I think it's also important to keep in mind that the definition of what is reporting has Mm -hmm. also changed, just like the definition of BI itself Mm -hmm. has changed. Mm -hmm. And now we're more focused on actually embedding analytic visualizations in existing customer applications. And that, in some ways, has become the new reporting. I mean, people... Less so are wanting exported PDFs, which are then mailed on a schedule to
0: someone's inbox. What
1: they really want is something that's visual and on-demand and embedded in a pre-existing user experience.
0: Right. So one of my earlier, actually two of my earlier engineering jobs, I just recall getting into the office in the morning and there would always be a report that I would be emailed that would have something to do with, Statistics from the day before that were map-reduced down to something, you know, that I could read that would be useful, and now it's more of a, well, I mean, it varies from company to company, and morning reports are still quite useful in in some contexts. but I think the idea has moved increasingly towards constantly updated visualizations, dashboarding, and then, you know, on the data engineering side, it's, it's like streaming data instead of batch data. So it's, it's interesting to kind of think of the use case being mirrored by the infrastructure that sits underneath it. Right? Yeah,
1: and mm-hmm. the expectations of users now, I mean, they want actionable data in real time as opposed to just this overnight batch, mm-hmm. batch processing. Yeah. And that's, that's changed in just maybe the past seven, eight years. I, mean, mm. I actually came from a Jaspersoft customer. i had been a white paper for Jaspersoft. And we did BI reporting for a major American fast food enterprise. And we started out actually compiling these reports overnight that would be then emailed to the senior executives at a lot of the franchisees. And That actually changed to drill down dashboards Mm -hmm. by the time I actually left and and came to work for Jasper Soft itself.
0: So in the earlier days, we didn't even really have the term data engineer. We didn't have data scientist back in 2006, but there was, I guess there was a DBA role that was sort of, there were some technical people who were, who would do certain things and there were business users that would do certain things. That is very different how things are today, I mean, you, well, I mean, there are still are very technical people that have to do this stuff. Some of the stuff has been pushed into the tooling itself. Like the tooling takes care of the data engineering, and then the data engineering roles are in some cases even more specialized, but significantly more specialized than than the DBAs were back in the day. How has that interaction between the business users and the business use cases? and the role of the engineers how has that that relationship between the two people and the relationship between them and the data platform itself how have those things changed over time
2: so back to that my earlier comments about you know what's analytics nowadays the expectation is that the end user has got control over the data access so the data engineer's job is to or dba or whatever is to Make sure that that data is available in the various tools, etc. So some of these tools require, like you know, behind the scenes loading or something like that. They are hooked into data lakes or or whatever. So it's there's this push and pull, well, you know, between you know, like data volumes and all sort of thing versus responsiveness and interactivity for the for that end user. Well, I mean,
1: right? if we map that into to Jasper Report Server. We have domains, mm-hmm. which are generally, you know, it's, it's a way of expressing data, it mm-hmm. allows you to have aggregations and calculated fields mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, derived data from mm-hmm. that, and then surface that to an end user who can then use that in a self-service fashion right. to analyze and then to generate embedded visualizations or reports or, or dashboards mm-hmm. from that. Mm-hmm. And so there you can see that the two different roles. So one, it really has a much deeper involvement with the data itself, and it's actually a process that provides that data to the end user. Mm-hmm.
2: And there's, there's often a, a data security aspect to all this as well. You know, there's... Uh, Governance. Yeah, yeah, much, et cetera, yeah, et cetera, which is very, yeah. very important for when you're w- sort of working across an enterprise or something like that. People are going to see particular data. Yeah. So you, the, the people who... You know, governing that data need to have the controls to do that. Sometimes they can do that in the data sources, but they can also do that within within Jaspersoft
0: and and these
2: other tools as
0: well. So.
1: Right. So does that does that answer your question a bit? I think. Yeah. Too- well,
0: okay. I mean, so what you're alluding to is that th- there's continued need for visualization. So Jaspersoft was originally used for kind of report generation and what business intelligence was back then, and the product has has migrated. It's evolved to serve more modern needs within those same organizations. So it's gone from this batch reporting to the continuous data visualization, dashboarding and reporting, and that's also reflected in how people want to consume that data as opposed to just this one single screen that you're viewing all your data on. You want to break it up into this Data visualization composable set of elements, and so that's kind of how the product has evolved. As JasperSoft has become this thing that you can use to build different dashboards, you can connect to these different data sources that are within your data platform, and so the data platform itself is is necessary for building these visualizations. Whether we're talking about batch visualizations or the you know the streaming real time data visualizations, what are the changes that you have seen around the data platform over the last decade?
1: Well, I mean, you know, traditionally it was, you know, your well-known industry standard databases. You know, MySQL, DB2, Oracle, yeah. Oracle, SQL Server. And typically you'd open a JDBC connection to it and it would be Typically a schema-based database, and mm. they're all pretty much they behave the same way. Right. Uh, the way they persisted data was, mm-hmm. for the most part, the same. Their SQL dialects varied very, very little, mm. and then things really started to change with, right. with big data. Actually, even before that, I was seeing a lot of a lot of customers in the
2: two thousand seven two thousand eight start to go down the track where all their data was in behind a message queue that's what we called them you know it was a JMS or something like yeah. that behind the scenes and you would be interacting with that through soap that was like the you know it was everything was xml right that's how that's what we're going to do soap request push the soap response into your report or or your visualization, basically.
1: I, I really miss WSDL, do you? Yeah, <laughs>
2: dear. Oh, man, that whole XML and all that stuff was like the Korba. You know, the sort of over-engineered standard that... We're uh, we're
1: really giving away our age. Yeah,
2: yeah, Yeah. unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, we were seeing that. And then we were able, because of our sort of open source base, to rapidly adopt a lot of the big data things that were coming out, originally around Hadoop, Hive, sort of Hive, JDBC sorts of things. And then, you know, watch that evolve over time. NoSQLs, the Mongos, yep. and that sort of thing of the world, leveraging their, you know, like, uh, I don't know, I can do geolocation sort of things in Mongo or whatever. And then then in, things move to REST. Everything a lot of Everything's REST. So I've got, you know, I have complete environments, complete enterprises now where, uh, you know, I'm not connecting to a database at all. I'm just doing REST calls.
1: Right, or maybe you know? an integration of them yep. as well, mm-hmm. which we yep. can do uh, with some kind of federated query. Mm-hmm. So it has... I think evolved tremendously. But one thing that's been, I think, to JasperSoft's advantage is that because it is open source, we've been able to embrace all these evolving technologies through using other open source products and open source projects.
2: Be very API driven, both from uh, how people access the various visualizations and data, as well as, you know, hook into the underlying data sources that we need, so...
0: So there is this notion of the operational database and the analytical database. The operational database is if I'm a user that's interacting directly with an application like a banking application, then I'm interacting with the operational database. I'm interacting with the transactions that are that are inside the bank. I'm interacting with the debits and credits of the bank. And then there's this analytical database. And oftentimes that's like used to perform aggregations. You're aggregating all the transactions. You're doing analysis. That's why it's called the analytical database. And you oftentimes have different schemas in these different data stores because if you're doing aggregations in the analytical database, then that's a very different operation than doing individual OLTP, the the point you're changing a document or changing a row. And so you have this ETL job that typically occurs or ETL pipeline where data from the operational database is taken into the analytical database in batches or in some cases in, in streams or or teed off to both of them at the same time, or models like that, I'm guessing that most of your users are reading from the analytical database, although you can correct me if, if that's wrong. and I'm just curious how the ETL pipeline affects how you think about product development of a uh, embedded visualization product.
2: Okay, so what's happened over time? Well, so, so first off, you know Jaspersoft has as an option, and its product suite is JasperSoft DTL, which is a white label of the Talend data integration platform. So which is great for like, you know, creating that analytic data store that you allude to there. And so we still see a lot of people doing that sort of work. Either they've done it themselves or you know, they, they use of ETL to, to, to do that sort of work. One of the things I've certainly seen is, as with the move to big data and the whole schema on read thing, there's less of that movement around the place now nowadays. You may be dumping things into a data lake and you're relying on the various power of the, the schema on read type of APIs and, and systems to go and provide that analytic view of that information. So the whole thing where... You know, I'm just you're just seeing what's happening up on the on the cloud providers now, where just dump everything in a flat file and then run a stateless SQL thing yeah, well, on top of it, right? Yeah, so, and I,
1: I think databases have gotten much more efficient mm-hmm. actually, you know, executing push down mm-hmm. aggregations Absolutely. that way. Yeah. So you can do a lot of that on the fly, whereas mm-hmm. before it was really difficult. And that's why I mentioned OLAP before mm-hmm. because yeah. that was a technology that allowed you to. Take your data from really a transactional database, and then to look at that in an operational view.
2: Yeah, and you know you apply the you know star scheme or snowflake sort of schema model, yeah. that sort of thing. So yeah.
0: So I think the thing we've been skirting around is the fact that over time the demands for what a customer wanted out of a data visualization solution changed. And it became taken from this monolithic reporting system to a more flexible modular reporting system, which could be articulated as embedded data visualization or embedded BI, where people want to have a small little dashboard component that fits into some system that they're building. Maybe it's an internal tool. Maybe it's a customer-facing tool. But Whatever it is, it's, it's some sort of BI chart or analytics thing that you want to present to the user if you are the user interface engineer. And in order to create that embedded BI tool or dashboard, you need to connect to the data sources. And the data sources have also changed. And so where this, this gets us is that you needed to migrate the JasperSoft monolith to a JasperSoft set of services or or something that is more composable, more modular. You know, JasperSoft was originally engineered as this monolithic Java application. Can you describe the initial architecture of JasperSoft and describe why that that didn't exactly work for the world going forward at, at a certain point?
2: So I, I was actually the architect for the JASP Report server and supported the community for quite a few years and did lots of different things and wrote a lot of code and my, my name's still on it, on, that, on chunks of that monolith. So originally, because we were working with JASP Reports and we were sticking with the Java market, basically, a lot of our original, you know, that's that's who we appealed to. So we, we were building a, what was sort of what, what we tried to do as a best practice type of Java application at the time. At those, at that time, there was a big battle between, well, you've got to use J2EE at that point. But I'd always thought it was like, J2EE was like, again, CORBA. In fact, some of it really is CORBA behind the scenes. So uh, I picked up Rod Johnson's work from, you know, all around Spring and that sort of thing. So we did, it was a, a Spring-based application without EJBs and all that sort of thing, very modular and componentized at that point. We needed, we have, so it's a simple war, a Java war, web application archive connected to a database with a meta database behind the scenes there. And so that made it um, very easy to deploy. We could go into lots of different J, J2E environments, simple thing like Tomcat, um, and we could also do things like use web standard tools like, oh, well, you want to do a load balancer? Great. That's fine. You know, nothing proprietary in there to be deployed anywhere. So that's that has stood us in good stead as we've moved around, you know, in the technology environment, go to the cloud, blah, blah, blah. Yep.
1: You know, now. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I, I think it's something that really changed the model for us was actually being probably what was the first BI platform in AWS yep. in their yep. marketplace. So, we started really thinking about the cloud and, and how we actually migrate there probably about six years ago? Initial
2: years? release was 2013, early 2013. Okay, mm-hmm. right, so
1: it's about five years mm-hmm. ago. So, as AWS and cloud technologies evolved, uh, so have we along mm-hmm. with it, which has now led to what we're doing next, which is taking the actual data access and rendering core, which is the original Jasper Reports library. And we're packaging that in a container and, and ultimately we'll be offering it as a full microservice. So, you know, we've been embracing Docker technology. I mm. think we had you know yeah. we, we had yeah. our own support for Docker through a set of Docker files. We, you know, Jasper software yeah, Docker actually, about actually, eighteen months ago.
2: Well as is typical, you know, the we were hearing about Docker from our customers who because of that standardized Java technology was yeah. able, were able to build their own Docker files. If you go to Docker Hub, you will see a vast array of these you know, yeah, of these I, open source things. Actually,
1: that raises a very good point. Yeah. And sort of a blank to fill in here is that our customer base started shifting from users of a standalone BI server to those who are SaaS providers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they were requiring that we fit into the modern SaaS architecture. Right. So they are some of the first to really embrace Docker. Mm-hmm. Yep,
0: absolutely. What was a, was a process of architecting that modularization because I, I know there's a lot of people that are listening that I think are going through this in some form or fashion or they're, they're in the middle of their microservices re-architecture or they have decided not to re-architect and they've decided to double down on the monolith and, and they're re-arch- making certain re-architectures to respect the monolith. What was the architecture and planning process like when you as you were deciding to go this more modular direction?
1: Well, I mean, I think for us it was easy in that there was this core, this Jasper Reports library core rendering engine written in Java. Uh, It provides data access and it provides visualization and report rendering. So it was very easy to pick out what would be the first natural standalone service. We were also able to take some of the APIs that were part of the server with it and our visualized JS uh, JavaScript SDK that allows you to embed directly into you know, without an iframe, directly into an existing web-based application. Mm-hmm. So that made it very simple, right? Mm-hmm. And so what we could do is we could actually take that code base. Now, you know there was a lot of consideration of where do we go next? What do we, how do we modularize what we're doing in such a way that we can start to dissect it? And I think the reality is, you can't always think about it that way. You look at your existing code base and think, well, how can I take it apart, maybe unwrap some of the dependencies and untangle them so I can have standalone services? And I think what really we're doing at this point is thinking about, well, how do we decompose the services? do we actually want to use the same code? You know, who knows? There's so many opportunities now to use technologies in languages like uh, you know, Node.js or use Go, and which may be more appropriate for a lot of microservices. It's not always a matter of taking your existing code base mm-hmm. and breaking it down to pieces and then making those available as microservices. It's really sort of thinking from the ground up. What are the services that my existing monolith offers And how do I want to render those as as independent Mm -hmm. services? And even some of the services that your application may currently have are really part of the PaaS platform that you're going to launch on. So why would you want to replicate a service that may be part of Azure or AWS or Google Cloud? So I think when we're architecting four services in the cloud, you really have to take a, a different view mm-hmm. and take a step back from your existing code base often.
0: Although if you take that to the extreme, it gets you to deploying everything in AWS Lambda functions right. or <laughs> yeah. Google Cloud functions.
2: <laughs> That's certainly what I'm seeing yeah. in, in in our with our customers and prospects right now, where the uh, attraction of being able to create your own environment or leverage the cloud providers and um, serverless environment is the way they want to go because they want the different economics i'm not i'm not paying you know x amount per hour or per minute for an AMI I'm paying on a transactional basis. I'm also allowing greater flexibility and you know sort of more say global or whatever reach it's sort of the, going the, through that you know using that that serverless type of thinking yeah. right well, it's
1: and of, the services around. It's it. sort of the ultimate alignment really of revenue and cost. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. We have done a lot of shows on microservices. And when I was talking to you guys before the show, you gave some reflections on that aggressive move to microservices from the software development community. And it's easy to get the impression, especially if you listen to this show, that everyone everyone should break up their monolith into microservices and, and you're inevitably going to move your monolith to microservices. But, I mean, I think some people do it just to do it or they think about doing it just to think about doing it, when in fact it's like, it's kind of an open question, like, are you actually producing a better product by moving to microservices? So when you think about the the trend between monolith and, and microservices more generally, what thoughts do you have? Is, is there kind of a herd mentality towards doing that, or is this a rational decision that the market has made?
1: I guess the comment I would make is that what I'm starting to hear and you know maybe you can confirm this because you probably have a, a better overall view g- given the nature of this podcast but that there's some backlash now against breaking everything down to microservices just because a level of complexity and I you know I sometimes I wonder if by the time People would actually break their monolithic mm-hmm. application or right. services down into microservices. Actually, it will no longer be something that that people I mean, right. it won't be won't be fashionable. It won't make good technical sense. Yeah, there's probably I'd say that there's a lot of use of
2: microservices in Net New. I mean, whether you're migrating a monolith or not, that's sort of irrelevant. Right. So, for example, you know, nowadays the web developer who's you know using Angular, React, etc. They're creating microservices, or well, the microservices are created for them to deliver the data or other functionality um, between the front and back end. And then behind the scenes, you know, those microservices could be, you know, in a lambda queue or whatever, being processed, and then then the you know, results returned or whatever. So, so it's probably not so much of a migration-y type of issue, but it's more like people are doing that more and more. Now, what I've seen is that uh, they end up to sort of Jan's point, in microservice hell, right? I, how many microservices have you created? I have 20, you know, that yeah, sort of yeah, thing. So yeah. you end up with this this sort of berserk, unmaintainable sort <laughs> well, of, and, you and know.
1: Your DevOps pipeline just starts to become unmanageable
0: yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well.
2: And your application yeah. sort of development pipeline as well. I've got to wait for all this stuff and maintain all this That's stuff. Right. Oh, my yeah. God, you know.
0: Right, so, yeah, open question, and uh, we're probably not going to, Come to a I'm conclusion not solve on. It here. So yeah, we're not <laughs> going to solve it here. So this migration that you were making from the monolith to the services or modular, or whatever you want to call it, but it, this maybe microservices, more modular components. This was occurring at JasperSoft after you got acquired by Tibco, and it was happening at the same time that you were making a migration into the cloud. So, well, I'm sure there were some advantages and there were some disadvantages to. The simultaneity of those two things, I think there are a lot of people who who get into this situation where they decided to time these two kinds of migrations and the migration and the breaking up or the fracturing into different services. And so what's been that experience of the the simultaneity of the movement to cloud and modularity microservice? Restructuring.
1: Actually, it wasn't really simultaneous for us for because us, yeah. because the move to the cloud was really five years ago when we first had you know our AMIs available for mm. our server on the AWS marketplace. So it was really the evolution from you know the the server being run on an individual EC2 instance as part of a customer's application architecture to this push to containerization, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think has driven JRIO mm-hmm. and you know, in alignment with what our customers are doing. One
2: of the sort of interesting things with for us as a software vendor in the cloud is the move to microservice architecture, serverless, all that sort of thing really mucks around with your revenue, right? That the original model say on some of these, you know, I, I can just, I've got a bunch of AMIs, people are paying X amount per hour or minute or whatever it is there, however long they're running is is fine. Now you can actually sort of bound that up and that's great. When you're particularly going stateless, right, now with um, the, the various cloud providers' ability to just spin up a container, you know, there's no EC2 instance or whatever. It's just being spun up and it may drop down again. That sort of starts to get into, like, how do I make sure my revenue? What am I getting out of this customer? Moves you to much more of a pay-for-what-you-use sort of model as opposed yeah. to the way the sort of virtual machine sort of approach. And now now where everything is really, really, really going serverless, that's a real problem in
1: software selling, so. Can, can you tell Sherman works in sales? Yeah, yeah. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So the migration, how many people were working on it? How did you divide up the work? And what was the technology stack that you were migrating to? Can you give me more of a picture for the architecture and the planning process around that migration?
1: T R Danchu, who was the original creator of the Jasper Reports Library, he and his team actually took the initiative and started working on JRIO. And it was really, you know, their understanding, their ownership of the Jasper Reports library that made it easy for them to really do. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, they worked with our API engineering team and the front-end engineering team that created the Visualized JS SDK, the, the JavaScript library. And the three of them, those three of those groups working together really were responsible for creating JRIO. And initially, to be honest, the scope of it was a bit more constrained. And as we got more into the project, we suddenly realized that we could start to incorporate more functionality into it than we originally planned for, hmm. which is why we then extended the APIs uh, out to the JS, yeah. you know, the JavaScript library. And we found that actually we created something that was far more more capable than we mm. originally anticipated. Yeah. So, you know, the technology stack uh, remains Java, right? right? The front-end library is JavaScript, although we will be migrating to TypeScript, mm. and the actual library itself is Java, and that is served up via Jetty, mm. right? So the, the idea was to take something originally that was language-dependent, which was the Jasper Reports library, and then turn it into something that was really language independent, environment independent. So now you could run this as a containerized service anywhere and integrate it into any environment. So one of the interesting things that we got into
2: was a lot of the way that our APIs work, they are actually conversational. Like, uh, run this report for me, now give me this, ex- this export, for example, right? So we actually do have... We've got a cache, you know, behind the scenes within the service that the various containers can can all collaborate around. So it's not a, you know, one of the things of, you know, air quotes microservices, oh, it's all stateless, stateless. It's like... We needed some level of state, so we you know, included that, that cache within the environment.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's much more difficult to make a truly stateless service. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I think that's aspirational. Yeah, and the way that we've approached it is by having shared persistence or a shared cache where we can persist these things that, uh, mm-hmm. that need to be shared across instances but do need to be persisted.
0: So the product today, you've got actually a number of different products. You've got the open source JasperSoft software, you've got the APIs, you've got JasperSoft for Docker, and jasperreports.io. What are these different products? How does JasperSoft, like, how do people use it today?
2: Where it starts on the reporting end is the the Jasper Reports library and related to that JasperSoft Studio, which is the Visual Designer where you can create and test out your report, you know, connect to data and that sort of thing. So you start with that, and then you've got the JAS Report server in the middle there where you can deploy your reports, and then with the servers where there are a variety of additional services like self-service, metadata layers, the repository, and all Scheduling, that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's where the APIs all basically are sitting. The, the rest pieces, the, it's what Visualize.js uh, collaborates with and you can, you know, embed, embed screens and that sort of stuff as well. We've got the Jaspersoft ETL as an option. We've got a Jaspersoft ADS, which is a, you know, enterprise class data virtualization environment. So these other things like really Jaspersoft uh, for Docker is literally just a deployment mechanism for the Jasper report server. For the entire server. For the entire server, right, yeah. at this point. So that's equivalent to, like, we use a CloudFormation template on AWS, for example, to deploy JasperSoft onto the, into your account up on Amazon. So the JRIO is going to be starting as a very simple, lightweight thing, yep. right? You know, really focused on out of the... Whereas JasperPort server, when it's running in a container, it's, it's the full stack. It is that monolith. Yep. And we do see a lot of people out there, when they go to that down the monolith route, or well, they've got the monolith. They just get it. Might be a huge freaking container, but you know, yeah. it's still a big. You know, it's a, it's still in the container environment, and they get all the, yeah. the coordination and that sort of thing around it. Whereas JRIO is aimed out of the box to be that. You know, you're going to be running completely natively in containers, multiple containers yep. doing different things, and we can. You know, people can plug that into whatever. They can YAML it, they can Kubernetes it, they can do whatever they want with it, stick it up in EC2, uh, ECS, for example, or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah,
1: and the use cases are a bit different. So, you know, with the actual full Jasper Report server, we have multi-tenancy, we have scheduling, we have, again, you know, tenancy-based data Mm -hmm. governance, Mm -hmm. and... JRIO doesn't incorporate all of those. Really, those things are delegated to the application builder. What JRIO can do is access data and then embed those visualizations directly in a pre-existing context, right? So let's say, you know, for example, unlike the way it was 10 years ago, where maybe you had a dashboard in like a portal-based application somewhere, and that is where you looked at all of your BI, look, you looked at all of your reports, now we want to embed visualizations That are actionable, right? So within an application in which you're able to actually take action, right? So it's not I'm looking at my visualization, I'm looking at my dashboard, then I'm context switching to another application to actually take some action. We're embedding it within the same app, and I think this has become a much more modern model. And this is really what JRIO directly supports. Yeah, we
2: we coined the embedded BI terminology back when was that now? Twenty when we yeah we were talking about that early 2013 type yep. of thing yep. so lots of other folks have come along and and they're using the same sort of thing to appeal to oems and you know the enterprises who want to embed in portals yep. and all that sort of stuff yeah. so.
1: so so that's really i guess the, the big difference and and between jrs as we call it which is the full-blown server and and jrio so as we've seen you know the needs of a customer base and needs of users really evolve you know mm-hmm. we've moved to something lighter weight that's really focused on those specific needs
2: and, and a basis to start, you know, we'll put other services around it yep. that collaborate with this to add additional functionality, like eventually the data governments and all these other things. Yep. So, yeah.
0: Interesting. So, what have been the biggest challenges in developing that new product? Because this move to a
2: containerized environment is a very technical thing, you really needed to work on the use cases.
1: Well, yeah, right? I would agree. Really, how much is enough? How much is really going to be useful to our customers? Right. And I think that's why I saw the scope expand mm. once development was actually underway. And so, you know, we really developed this in a truly agile fashion. Mm. And so we would look at requirements and, mm. and sort of reevaluate what was the MVP for this as we were in motion? Right. And so, and that's how we sort of ended up with what we have right now and expanded it out and really sort of looked at and considered what were the core needs of our customers and aligned what we were building with that.
2: And that collaboration is, you know, the sort of thing that Teodor and his team do. It's like, we think about doing this. Oh, that means we can do that. You know that that sort of yeah. back and forth yeah. was a lot yeah. of
1: fun. Yeah. yeah, well, they're they're a great team to work with, and really very very agile. Mm-hmm. Really, they're out really of uh, great you know, they're all in uh, they're Romania. all in Bucharest Romania. Yeah, they are. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the planning process it took a few at bats, and but then eventually you really identified the surface area of of they what were, you need to change. of
2: It evolved through the completely through the process. The initial idea was, oh, we'd have some we'd have this microservice that exposed some REST endpoints, and you could generate just content. Just, just, yeah, That was it. And now, it can do that, but now it can also do the deep deep embedding of the visualizations through the JavaScript API as well. Right, and I think and it, that's, that, that really
1: know. turned out to be critical. Mm-hmm. So, at the time, we thought, well, this might be interesting, and then we realized that without it, its utility was, was somewhat questionable. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, this was a significant migration. What lessons did you learn around software architecture around estimations around just managing a large software project from this significant migration this the significant refactoring
2: at least one of the things i'm sure jan can chime in here is that you needed when you start you don't know what you're doing right so you need essentially like proof of concept time to sort of work out all the knobs and dials on the thing and then you come up with like a a candidate architecture, and then you iterate on that sort of stuff. So, you know, I think that that was the... You don't go down this track, like with any technology, without spending a bit of time kicking the tires, thinking about it. And, you know, the Teodorn team did that really well. Yeah, yeah. Thus harassing them, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah,
1: and then they're a somewhat unique team. But I think one of the lessons we learned from this is... As we start to build a set of, I guess, more complete services around it, we have to sort of consider how do they work together Mm -hmm. and how do they work alone? So does it add value on its own and what does it add to the existing set of services that we have? And, and I think we've learned definitely something from mm-hmm. from JRIO mm-hmm. just because mm-hmm. the, the scope expanded. And we sort right. of realized this was really going to be the, the MVP for it. And, w- and we weren't really sure at the beginning. But I think as a result of that, some of that experimentation has taught us lessons that we'll take to the rest of the services mm-hmm. that we develop. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Cool. So when you think about products, the data visualization layer has changed rapidly in the last 10 years. And same with data platforms and it will undoubtedly change again in the next five or 10 years. What are the predictions do you have around how this interface between users and data is going to change?
1: Well, I mean, I think we've already seen some of this, and, and I think the Sherman sees this with, with prospects and customers all the time. It's gone from having more can visualizations ones that that you can you know perhaps style to i really just want some data because i've got my own visualization library and they want to be able to to easily just get back data maybe perhaps as json like i don't want the the complete embedded visualization uh, or maybe i want uh, just a partial visualization and i want to augment that with my own whether mm. using d3 right. or you know right. or any other library so that's making
2: things go down to, say, a more technical level. But I think it's also going up the other way to people are expecting a richer information experience. And the tools and platforms that give them that are the ones that are basically going to win. So how do I... You know, I've got some... I'm not just looking at, say, operational data anymore with some lights of KPIs. I'm really looking at more of an analytical type of model here that's looking at my process, my business, whatever. And that's people want to get that, you know, increase that value out to their, say, themselves internally within their organisation or for a software vendor or SaaS provider to say, I need, I have richer and richer analytics going out to my customer base. And we've seen that, you know, we've, we've done the sort of analysis to see the software vendors who really go for that more analytic end they're able to charge more it's more valuable you know that sort of thing so I think for us as most, majority of our customer base, OEM Jaspersoft I think you know our ability to help them get there because they might not have that skill in house, I think it's going to be pretty critical going forward
0: okay well Jan and Sherman I want to thank you for coming on the show it's been really great talking to you about this migration and data platform and data visualization it's been a really wide ranging conversation great thank you very much
1: well, thanks, Jeff. And I also just want to say what a pleasure it is to be on your show. I've been a big fan of your podcast for a number of years, so it's oh. it's it's a real pleasure.
0: Cool. Thank you. Really appreciate you listening and maybe you can give me some feedback on the show afterwards. I'm always looking for ideas or improvements to make.
2: I mean, this I think this was a good conversation. You you brought a lot to it and I had fun. I don't know about
0: <laughs> Absolutely. You know. Awesome. Wow.